right, welcome to the God of Miracles. My name is Nithin. I'm one of the pastors here where we have literally been following in the footsteps of Christ, taking a tour of the Holy Land. But listen, before we jump in any further, we join me welcoming those watching online and our campuses. What's up, guys? How y'all doing? Man. It has been an exciting couple of weeks. We've really been going on a spiritual pilgrimage of sorts where Pastor Tim's been leading us uh, in the footsteps of Jesus, seeing the Holy Land in 3D technicolor, and it's been awesome. In fact, last week, Pastor Tim took us to Capernaum. Capernaum is where the majority of Jesus' miracles took place. He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. And in fact, the way we ended the service is we invited people to come forward for prayer. And it was really exciting to see what God did in the lives of our church and our campus. In fact, I want to share with you a couple quick stories. There's a woman in our Middlesex County campus. Her knee had gotten, um, was in a lot of pain, was stiff, was swollen. She came forward for prayer, and she said the stiffness and the swelling went down, and she was actually able to move it again, and the pain was gone, and she felt touched by the Holy Spirit. There's another cool story about a woman in Mercer County. She was having really debilitating uh, neck pain. Her arm was numb. They prayed for her, and, and, and the pain was starting to go away. And by the next day, she was completely pain-free. Can we give our God a praise right now? Right? He is a God of miracles. And, you know, every Sunday after our services, we have the opportunity for you to come forward for prayer, to come forward for healing prayer. So you can always have that opportunity uh, that whenever it comes up. But this week, we will be having a special worship night that will be centered on healing prayer prayer. And so if you want to join us to marinate in the presence of God, I would encourage you to come hang out with us. Doors open at 7, and at 7.30 we'll begin our time of worship. Now, today we are going to continue our tour of the Holy Land, but I got to have an honest moment with y'all. I have not yet been to Israel. It's kind of on my bucket list. So to compensate, Pastor Tim kind of let me borrow some videos. He let me borrow this nifty scarf here, and then I grew this really cool beard. You know, in the, in the traditions of the rabbis, to honor Rabbi Jesus. And so today we're going to be taking a trip to two locations. The first is the Mount of Beatitudes, where Jesus preached one of the greatest sermons of all time. And then we're going to a place called Masada, which is a desert fortress. It's kind of like the Alamo for the ancient Jews. It's where they took, made their last stand against the Roman legions. Because in this series, we're trying to bring three elements together. We're trying to bring together geography and history and archaeology as a way to kind of piece together a complete portrait of Jesus and the world that he lives in. And so when you start to go to the land of the Bible and you start to kind of, you know, I think Pastor Tim called it like a mosaic, right? All these different pieces come together. And when they come together, you get a fuller picture of the face of Christ. You guys ready to take a little trip? All right, let's spin the globe, folks. Come along and ride on a fantastic slide, slide, slippity slide. If you're living in the city, it's do or die. And so we will go to the city of... Oh, well, thank you. I didn't know if anyone remembered Coolio, so that's, that's great. So from Coolio to Capernaum. So this is where we were last week. We were in Capernaum. That was where uh, Jesus was his headquarters. Well, Jesus then took about an hour and a half walk up to the Mount of Beatitudes. Now, why did Jesus leave Capernaum? Well, the, the truth was Capernaum was getting overrun. 
People were hearing these stories about this miracle worker, Jesus, how he's doing all these amazing things. So they wanted to come check it out, but there was not enough room. So Jesus took a walk up to the Mount of Beatitudes because there'd be a lot more room. It's a lot more of a hilly side, uh, um, a hillside. Not only that, it was a natural amphitheater. So he could literally just start talking and more people could actually hear him. So that was what was pretty incredible about that. And here's where Jesus gave what I call his goat sermon. You guys know what I mean by goat sermon? Greatest of all time, the Sermon on the Mount. And right here, Jesus actually preached this sermon here. In fact, on this spot, you can tell, you know, Jesus can preach lots of crowd, lots of room for the crowds, and he can kind of preach out and everyone can hear him. And on this spot to commemorate that is the Church of the Beatitudes. What's kind of neat about this church is it's got eight sides. See, one, two, three, four, five, six, and there's eight all around. Aside for each of the Beatitudes or the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, the blessed words, the beautiful words. In fact, Pastor Tim on his trip got to visit the Mount of Beatitudes, and he's going to give you a taste of what it was like there. Check this out. Hey guys, I'm here in Tiberias on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus did most of his teaching. Right now, we are the place where he gave his famous Sermon on the Mount. So we're standing on a mountain right now, and you can see this is where he would have the crowds and be pressing in to listen to him. And understand that Jesus was a rabbi. He was a Jewish teacher, but he was a radical rabbi. And here at the Sermon on the Mount, he gave eight beatitudes or beautiful attitudes that we're to have as followers of Christ. Uh, one of them is, blessed are the meek for they'll inherit the earth. He had some radical teaching nobody had ever heard before, such as loving your enemy, turning the other cheek, going the extra mile. It's where we get all of those beautiful attitudes. That's why he said, Blessed are those, Baruch, blessed are those who have the attitude of God, for they will see God. So let's actually jump into some of these beautiful words, these Beatitudes. You can find it in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. He was also one of Jesus' biographers. And there we'll find these eight blessings, the eight Beatitudes. And there's really two parts to them. There's the actual attitude itself, and then there's a promise that's attached to that attitude. So here's what I want to do kind of maybe keep us engaged a little bit, keep us awake. I know it's early, right? So here's what I want to do. I'm going to actually say the attitude out loud, and then I want you to yell back at me the promise that's attached to it. You guys got it so far? We'll see which campus is the loudest. Some of you, though, that are watching on the screen, I can hear you. The Holy Spirit gives me the ability. So, so here's an example. Here's the example, right? For instance, I'll say, blessed are the poor in spirit, and you'll say, for the— Fantastic. You guys are quick learners. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be blessed are the merciful. They will be blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. See, these are eight blessings, these beatitudes, but what's even more interesting is they're kind of like hyperlinks. So if you kind of click on one, you get to a more amplified teaching of Jesus, and in these teachings, you find that Jesus has some of the most radical and revolutionary teachings in human history. In fact, that's why Jesus is not just a rabbi, he's a radical rabbi. Now church, say rabbi with me. Rabbi means teacher. And you see, Jesus is teaching like he does in the manner of all rabbis. For instance, he'll say something like this. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. 
Now, the way it goes afterwards is a rabbi would say, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And Rabbi Herschel says this along with it. And Rabbi Joshua says this because they like to quote a rabbinical authority to kind of go back and forth. But Jesus actually quotes a higher authority. He says this, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone that looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, Jesus knew that all of history and all of Scripture actually pointed back to him. And so now Jesus, in this sermon, is showing them that there is actually a better way to be human. There's a better way to exist. There's a better way that's God-centered. It's what's called the kingdom of God. And Jesus in this kingdom would be the king and would be the center of our existence. And then whatever we would have once believed along the ways of this world, we'd see it actually is wrong. It doesn't work out. You see, the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom where the last shall be first and the first shall be last and the strong are actually weak and the weak are actually strong. And Jesus starts to kind of flesh this out, especially in one of his Beatitudes that we read, blessed are the peacemakers, which actually hyperlinks to verses 38 to 42, where Jesus kind of begins probably one of his most extreme teachings where he says this, you've heard that it was said eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Now I want you to kind of get this picture here, okay? Jesus is on that hillside that we saw before, right? And, and he's teaching this, and the people are all sitting there, and they're kind of listening to what he's saying, and Jesus goes like this. He goes, you've heard that would have said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And everyone's like, yeah, Jesus! There you go! You gotta bring the word, Jesus! Come on now! Because they're getting excited. They're like, eye for an eye. Yeah, that's what it's about. I know some of you are like, oh, those are just ancient people. They're just kind of weird. But, but wait a minute. These, these folks knew their Bibles. And what they knew was that Jesus was quoting Leviticus 24, where it says, anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture. Eye for an eye. Tooth for tooth. And they're hearing Jesus start out this sermon, and they're like, yeah, that's my rabbi. This rabbi knows what he's talking about. He's talking about the law of retaliation. Now, the law of retaliation worked the same way in the ancient world like it does in New Jersey, <laughs> which basically is, you mess with me, I mess with you. You mess with my mother, I'm messing with your mother. You know, he goes back and forth, back and forth, right? You, you got something to say to me? Well, I got something to say to you. You're going to say something back? I'll say something back to you. Then it just gets out of control, right? It just kind of escalates, goes crazy. But, you know, 2,000 years later, and we still live according to the law of retaliation, right? We see this in politics, like, all the time. Like someone on the right says something and someone on the left is offended so they get their Twitter followers to, to respond and then they respond and their Twitter followers counter-react and it becomes this big mess, right? Or it's personal, like maybe in parenting, right? You know, you're, you're with your mom and, and your kids and, and you're kind of, you know, and, you're, and, and your mom goes, you know, I don't know why you're making little Jimmy eat his vegetables. He's a good kid. Just give him a candy bar. And all of a sudden your mom becomes your enemy. You're like... Mom, you know what? Look at the way you raised me. You know, maybe I'm doing it differently than you, right? Right? Something like that. Or, or, or you know, this is a typical thing that happens in Jersey. Someone cuts you off. So you honk at them, and then you give them the Jersey salute, right? Lead between the lines. You know, just, that's just how it is. It's the law of retaliation. Someone offends you, but you're like, you know what? I'm not going to get mad. I'm not going to yell at them. I'm going to beat them emotionally. 
I'm, I'm not going to talk to them. I'm just going to kind of stiff arm them, right? That's kind of like how we do it, right? And those folks that we retaliate or want to retaliate against, whether we like it or not, they're actually kind of our enemies. Do you have an enemy that's coming to mind right now? Do you have someone that you can't wait to retaliate against? Is there someone that comes to your mind? But here's the problem with the law of retaliation. It just doesn't satisfy It's not enough to put a bully in their place. We want to make sure that their lives are wrecked and ruined. It's not enough for a politician that we disagree with to compromise and pass legislation. We want to see their entire lives crash and burn. And when we understand that this is what's happening, the law of retaliation is always escalating, we start to see how radical Jesus' teachings really are. Because in the first century, there is an escalation that's happening. There's more and more violence, and it's about to blow up into a retaliatory violence. Because we need to understand the history of the Romans versus the rebels. Church, say Romans versus rebels. So here's what the setup here. In the ancient world, uh, Rome wanted to bring what's called Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome, which basically meant Rome would conquer everybody and you'd like it. And so this is Caesar here. Caesar is one who's kind of going into the entire world trying to conquer. And then he comes to Israel and he meets with a group of Israelites called the Zealots. Say Zealots, church. The Zealots want nothing more than to throw Rome out of their homeland. And so there is a war that's going on because here's the problem. As soon as the Romans came in and they conquered, all of the Jewish leadership started to collude with Rome. Guys like Herod. Maybe you've heard of King Herod. He was the guy that tried to kill Jesus as a baby. But when the Jewish leaders like Herod colluded with the Romans, it created massive inequalities all across the ancient world. People were being oppressed and intimidated. And in fact, Herod is famous for overtaxing people. What he would do was he would have these crushing taxes so he could fund his building projects. In fact, this was creating so much uh, chaos, people were leaving the Mount of Beatitudes and going to another mountain, and that was the Mount of Masada. Say Masada with me, church. Masada. This is a desert fortress, actually. It's pretty impressive here. It's 1,300 feet above the Judean uh, desert. You can see like, all, all how vast it is and how high it is. And what's really fascinating about it, it's impregnable. Nothing can kind of break through. It kind of looks like a, a mountain almost. And not only that, you see, you can, it has several, several ways it holds food and water for several years now. In fact, Herod built this so, you know, when the Romans and the rebels went at it, he would have a place for him and his family to kind of hide away. But what happened was, after he died, the Romans took it over, and then the zealots came, and they took it over uh, after, you know, from the Romans. In fact, one of the most famous zealots is a guy named Judas Iscariot. Maybe you've heard of him. He's one of Jesus' earliest disciples. Now, the Romans had to take back Masada. And the way they did it was they actually built a ramp. So you see over here, there's this ramp. They built that ramp. It took them two years to build this ramp so that they can get into Masada. They build this ramp, and they finally get into Masada, and they're greeted with a site of complete horror. In fact, they called it the Citadel of Death. Because when they got in there, all of the buildings were on fire, and all 963 men, women, and children had killed themselves. Because they said, we would rather die than live under the Roman oppression. 
So you got to understand, this is the world that the radical rabbi Jesus is living in. This is the world of violence where the law of retaliation was all over the place. And so as this world is, as this is the world when Jesus is teaching them and he's here and people are hearing him say this, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth. The people are thinking, yes, revolution, Jesus. We're with you, Jesus. You are the warrior Messiah, Jesus. We have got your back. You just let us know, and we'll pick up swords and spears, and we'll help you throw the Romans out. Then he says this. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Wait. I'm sorry, Rabbi. Did I, mis did I mishear you? And not only that, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if anyone sues you and takes your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two. You know, we live in this world where it's all about retaliation, right? You do this, I do that. Eye for an eye justice. But Jesus is showing us that eye for an eye justice is obsolete because all you do is you end up making the whole world blind. See, Jesus is saying there needs to be a better way. There needs to be a higher way. There needs to be a kingdom of God way that says at this point we're going to stop the cycle of violence so it's no longer perpetuated. See, Jesus is giving us a higher kingdom standard which is to resist retaliation. We're called to resist retaliation because it says blessed are the peacemakers, not the warmongers. Because the peacemakers will be children of God. Now, I think the Sermon on the Mount often, and these teachings, you know, it almost seems like Jesus is telling us that we need to be a doormat, that we need to let people walk all over us. But that's because we don't understand the first century context and how radical these teachings are. That if you can actually show your enemies this kind of love, it can actually change several things. In fact, I want to break this down for you because Rabbi Jesus breaks this down. He's a radical rabbi, right? He gives us these three pictures of what it actually looks like. He's where, you know, for instance, he says this, you know, what does it mean to turn the other cheek? If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, what does it mean to actually turn to them and offer the other one as well? And now to do this, I feel like I need to demonstrate this, right? For us to freely understand this. Do I, do I have any volunteers? Any volunteers? Okay. Uh, I, don't, I don't want to slap kids, sorry. Um, I, I can't slap any women either. Okay, let me, let me think. Who is, who is someone I would really, really like to slap? Who would be the person where, man, it would be great to just slap them? Is Pastor Tim here? <laughs> Pastor Tim, are, 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 you, are you here? Are, yeah. are, are, What's up? Hey, what's yeah. up? What's, no, no. What's, what's going on? I was just in the clean water cafe getting coffee. What's going on? Hey, you know, one of the things I love about right. you is you make the Bible come alive. I love it. Absolutely. Would yeah. you help me make um, turning the other cheek come alive? You want me to hit you? How about I hit you? Anything for Jesus. Okay, oh, I appreciate right. that. Okay. I appreciate that. Now, listen, when you slap someone on the right cheek, Pastor Tim's right cheek is right here. So to do that, you'd have to use your left hand, something like this. Oh. It's almost like it was a little delayed. Did a little you, bit, a little bit. Did you feel that? That's right. Yeah, I think it was okay. something with the wind, yeah, right? Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> but you know, the thing is, in the ancient world, you don't, you don't use your left hand to, to do anything because it's, it's unclean. 
And oh. if you're a lefty, you're seen as cursed or something like oh, that. Oh, interesting. I know, it's interesting. So you do everything with your right hand, but you can't really get at yeah, it. How do you hit my right cheek with your right well, you'd hand? You'd actually have to use the back of your hand, something like this. Oh, gosh. Wow, that was a little bit closer on that Sorry one. Sorry about yeah. that. Yes. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, all right. I got to ice that later. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, you give someone the back of your hand. It's where we get backhanded compliment from. That's where, oh, like backhanded compliment. Okay. Got yeah, it. exactly. The, but when you used the back of your hand on somebody, mm -hmm. it was basically on someone that was beneath you. Okay. It, yeah, there we there go. go. Someone go. that's lower than All you. Right, ready. Like, like this. Oh, man. This I is, know. This is, we're going to talk on Monday. Right. I, it's going to be a great meeting. So usually it'd be like a, a Roman to a Jew or a, a master to a slave. Okay. And when they hit them, they would kind of cringe. But what Jesus is saying is when someone hits you on your right cheek. Oh. <laughs> wow. That one I fell a couple seconds after. Yeah, that this, one was. I know. Gosh, wow. Well, Jesus says to turn your other cheek to them. Hit me on the left, right? Because like what happens is when you hit with, oh, let me just hit you real quick. What? Just got to practice that. Okay. <laughs> wow. Excuse me. God of miracles. <laughs> So when you show them your other cheek, yes. that's how you actually hit an equal. Okay. Oh, and so what you're you. basically saying is when you show them your other cheek, you can't treat me like I am a less human being. You're like, you need right to treat here. me. Yeah, exactly. You need to treat me like an equal. I have dignity. Oh. Jesus is restoring power, not okay. stripping it away from people Pretty to poor cool. and marginalized people. Yeah. Awesome. So to kind of sum it all up, the back of the hand would be a kind of a way to say, stay in your. <laughs> Let's try that again. Whoa. <laughs> My goodness. Wow. Okay. I got gotcha. you. See? So, the back of the hand, get in your place. <laughs> this is going. And then, well, welcome to tech rehearsal, I everybody. Know, I know. It's good to see. And then you turn your cheek, and that'd be like a sign that says, no, no, you treat me like an equal. I power up on you. Then, the Roman soldier, I think we all know, gets on the top of the rope and comes down <laughs> on the... <laughs> This kind of lets him have it. That's, a, that's very interesting. Awesome. Thank you. I'm going to go have some more coffee. Awesome. Well, thank All you right. so much, okay. Pastor Tim. So, you know, that's the way of Jesus, right? Jesus finds these creative ways to kind, of, uh, um, to kind of take the power away from the oppressor. In fact, another way that, ha that shows that he's a radical rabbi. In fact, one of the ways, you know, when the zealots would come in, they'd say, we want to slit the throats of Rome. And Jesus said, no, no, turn the other cheek. Let them deal with you as an equal. And not only that, he has another teaching that's pretty um, revolutionary. He says this. He says, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand your coat over as well. So he moves from a physical conflict to a legal conflict. Any of you ever been in a difficult lawsuit or a frustrating lawsuit? Yeah, Jesus is talking about that right here. See, you know, in the ancient world, what would happen was that the rich, to oppress the poor, would, put them, would take them into lawsuits. And so he'd be suing them and trying to get all the stuff from them. And so sometimes they'd even try to take their shirts but they couldn't take their coats because in the ancient world, your coat's kind of what you use for everything, right? Like it was your blanket when it was cold, and so you needed your coat. Well, if you were getting sued and someone took your shirt and then you gave them your coat, what would you be wearing? Nothing. So in that place, you'd be there naked and vulnerable. And in the ancient world, it's actually against the law to take someone's coat. And in that moment, your oppressor, the person that was trying to sue you, would be shamed. 
They, they, would, they would be exposed as being greedy and hostile. In fact, the judge would actually award your stuff back because you took this position of vulnerability. You see, there's something power, powerful about choosing vulnerability over violence. There's something that actually is, is kind of turns the tables on your enemies. In fact, you ever imagine just reading through this? And maybe you're in a lawsuit right now, you're going through divorce right now, and it's like, it's like tit for tat, it's punch and it's counterpunch, it's the law of retaliation. What if you actually said, you know what, why don't you take, why don't you take the house and take the car? I'm just going to trust that God's going to take care of me. So, so why don't you have this? I'm going to bless you and not curse you as an enemy. Do you think that God could honor that? Do you think God could use your generosity, maybe not to heal the relationship, but to create peace? But you need to understand this. I want to be very, very clear. Jesus is not saying that you should be a doormat. He's not saying that you should take the abuse, that you should be exploited, that violence should not be um, addressed. In fact, sometimes when you're in an abusive situation, the most godly, holy thing, most loving thing you can do is to call the police and have that oppressor, that partner, put in handcuffs. You see, Jesus is not trying to strip away power. He is restoring power to people who've had power that's taken away from them. And we see this again with the third picture, the last picture, where he says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two. Now at this time, the Romans who kind of occupied everywhere, they, they would always go on marches. And so they had these heavy packs that they would have to carry. But oftentimes they would just grab someone and say, you, boy, carry my pack. So imagine you're out in your front lawn playing with your kids or you're at work and you're trying to run errands and all of a sudden some Roman grabs you and says, carry my pack for a mile. I mean, can you imagine just the, the lack of dignity you'd feel and just the anger? And then you carry it for a mile and then you keep going and then that Roman is all of a sudden experiencing this shame and, and just kind of confusion. Like, what, why are you doing this? Well, because I follow a radical rabbi who says, I'm going to die to myself and I want to bless you so that you can see what a great rabbi he is. Retaliation is not the same as confrontation. You know, we are still called to confront evil, amen? In fact, when you read this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, many people think, oh, it's a, it's a manifesto for passivity, but it is anything but. This section of scripture has inspired some incredible, incredible transformation around the world. In fact, some, some of you are probably thinking this. I, I get that. You're like, well, Nathan, why even bother? Why even bother, right? Like, you know, will this even change anything? Like, there's so many things wrong with our world. Can we really live this way today? But, you know, this was actually something, something very similar that was happening in the um, American South in the 20th century. When you think of Jim Crow laws, which created segregation, which kept African Americans marginalized, poor, and intimidated. When these laws were in place, men and women who were inspired by the Sermon on the Mount stood up and said, no more. Men like Martin Luther King Jr., women like Rosa Parks. When you think of the Sermon on the Mount and its teachings, think of Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks. They didn't just ignore evil. They didn't just step over it, but they confronted. In fact, here's what a picture looks like of active, nonviolent confrontation. As Dr. King and his people are moving into Alabama, they know that they'll be facing some of the cruelest, um, painful th images of humanity. They're going to experience the police, and they're going to experience fire hoses being turned on them, police dogs, 
but they don't stop moving. They keep going forward. They don't stop because the truth of the matter is, is that the gospel says that you and I are made in the image of God. We, we, are, we deserve dignity in the eyes of the law and the eyes of legality. And so we will not stop. Amen? Amen. See, they were not afraid to confront evil. They named it and they shamed it. They called it out. And Jesus had a word for them. He said, blessed are the meek. Now, often when we think of the word meek, we think, oh yeah, Jesus, he was meek and mild. And he was so sweet, right? But that's not a picture of what meekness is. You know what meekness is? Meekness is actually power under control. That's the definition of it. It actually is a term that comes from horseback riding. Or if you have a stallion or a horse that's very strong and very powerful and, and, you know, and it needs to be broken, it gets a bit and a bridle put on it so you can ride it, and now its power can be focused, its strength can be focused, its speed can be focused, and that's what meekness is. It's power under control. In fact, you know one of the promises that Jesus gives to those who are meek? He says this, he says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But why do the meek inherit the earth? Because they're the only ones who have shown that they can steward their power and privilege well. They've shown that they can take what they've been given, their power, and use it for the sake of the poor and the oppressed, not for retaliation, not to hold on to their own power, not to hold on to their own strength. And maybe you're thinking right now, you know what, Nathan, that's great. It's great for the civil rights, and you know, but how, how do you do this on a daily basis? Like, I don't know if it even works that way. But I think Jesus meant us to live in this way on a daily basis. In fact, verse 44, it says this, I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Love, bless, do good, and pray. Maybe not necessarily in all those orders. I remember, um, I always have a hard time with this teaching of Jesus. And it's not because, like, you know, like, you know, I'm not really, like, a grudge carrier. I just assume that everyone loves me, you know? Like, I just assume when I walk into a room, like, you know, if someone doesn't like me, it's their problem, not mine. Um, that's my own sin issue. Um, but I remember a couple years ago, I worked at, I was working at this job, and there was a guy I worked with who was super, super critical. Uh, like, he just drove me crazy. Anything and everything I said, there was either something wrong with it, he was condescending, he was just sarcastic. I had a hard time with him. I'd go home and tell my wife Jackie about him, and she's like, oh, I, I hate him too. And so, you know, we just kind of hated this guy. <laughs> it's nice when your spouse is with you, right? It's like, yeah, jerk. Um, and so, you know, I, I come to this scripture at some point, and, and I felt the Lord saying, Nathan, you need to love this guy. And I said to the Lord, No. I'm good. And so, you know, you know, you know, I feel like God's very patient with me. So I was like, all right, God, I'll pray for this guy, right? I'll do the fourth thing. I'll pray for him, right? And so, you know, I see him the next day, and I said, you know, I kind of avoid him because he's kind of in. And then, you know, I give a presentation, and he's super critical. And so, you know, I, I pray for him. I'm like, Lord, get him. Like, that's, <laughs> that's like my prayer. It's like, go, go get him, Jesus, you know? Um, and so every time I see him, you know, I'm avoiding him, but, you know, I, I, I'm praying for him because I said that's what I'm going to do. And eventually God actually started to change my heart towards him. And then I felt like God was saying, all right, you need to kind of do something, do good for him. Bless and do good. I'm like, all right, well. So I go up to him one day and I say, uh, hey, do you want to grab lunch, my treat? He's like, what? 
I go, yeah, I mean, you know, we've been on this project together for a couple months. I don't really know you. Why don't we go and grab a meal? And so we go, we get a meal, and, you know, we have a great conversation. It was one of many, many meals that happened over the next few, um, few months. And I got to know him. I, I got to know some of his kind of struggles, some of his insecurities, and kind of uh, some of his hang-ups. And I was able to have more compassion for him and empathy. And, and I wasn't—I was kind of surprised. It went from being like, all right, maybe we'll become friendly, you know, and, you know, work better together, to actually becoming friends. There, there's something about this love for enemies that Jesus teaches that can transform our relationships with people. So here's my question for you. Who do you need to go the extra mile for? You know, for me, you know, it was buying this guy lunch and building that relationship— but who is it that you need to bless and do good for? Is it a bad boss? Is it a conniving coworker? Is it an estranged family member? But who is that person? They're your enemy, but God is saying, I want you to take a step towards. You don't have to fix everything, but who do you need to take a step towards sooner rather than later? Maybe it's your critical spouse. Maybe you, you, when you and your spouse get into it, you know, they can be very critical, and then it's eye for an eye, right? It's tooth for a tooth. You know, you said this, man, I'm going to say this back to you. But what if you actually responded with vulnerability? What if you actually said, you know what? What you just said really hurt me. I'm not going to walk away. I'm not going to throw a tantrum. But you really hurt me with what you said. I love you. Or maybe it's the, the Facebook friend where when you see him at church or you're hanging out, it's like, oh, they're, 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 they're meek and mild. But then all of a sudden you see a Facebook post, you're like, oh, this is kind of offensive and racist. And rather than commenting in anger, what if you reached out and said, hey, can we get some coffee? I'd like to get to know where you're coming from. I'd love to know, like, how I can learn from you. And took a posture of actually learning from someone that maybe— you'd easily write off. What if you started building bridges rather than building walls? See, Jesus, <laughs> he was a radical rabbi, and he radically practiced what he preached. And when the Romans learned of what he was teaching, and when the Jewish leaders saw what he was teaching, they had him killed. They, they put him on a Roman cross, and a Roman cross was only reserved for political prisoners, for the poor, because it was, it was their way of dehumanizing and humiliating their victims. And there, so there's Jesus hanging on the cross, vulnerable. And there are his enemies. They've come to gloat. They've come to mock him. And they're mocking him and they're spitting on him. And Jesus in that moment, he could have called down all of the angelic armies. He could have opened up the earth and they could have been swallowed by hellfire and the kingdom of God would have started right then and there. But instead, hanging on the cross, vulnerable and naked, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He laid down his life for his enemies. He practiced what he preached. Who is God calling you to lay down your life for? Who is it? that you need to be vulnerable to. You know, it's interesting that, you know, Jesus, while all of this is going on, there's a Roman centurion at the foot of the cross, an enemy. And then he looks up, 
Surely this man is the Son of God. When you love your enemies, people see Jesus inside of you. When you take that courageous step towards people who don't like you or don't agree with you, they start to see Christ in you. So here's what I want to do. I want to, I want to actually pray for you. I want to pray that the love of Christ that was able to love his enemies on the cross would overwhelm and overtake you so you can do the same. Holy Spirit, I just want to ask you to come right now. I'm getting a sense that the Holy Spirit is saying to some of you, you need to send a text message right now. Go ahead, open your eyes, send out a text message, and you need to say, say to somebody, I forgive you. Let's get together. You won't be able to fix everything on a Sunday morning. But go ahead. I feel like some of you have to send a text message. Or for some of you, the text message is, I'm sorry. Holy Spirit, whatever it is that you're saying to my brothers and sisters right now, God, I pray that you'd show them how they need to go the extra mile to love their enemies, to pray for those who persecute them, to do good to those who hate them. Father, would you enable them to do that? God, I can't imagine some of the situations and the circumstances. I know that for some of them, it's impossible. And Lord, it is impossible. Which is why we need you, Jesus. You forgave us while we were your enemies. You loved us when we were your enemies and you invited us to come into relationship with you, to come to your table. And so we come before you, God, open-handed, asking for a fresh filling of your spirit. So go ahead and hold out your hands right now, church. All across our campuses, hold out your hands. This is a way to say, I want you to come right now, Holy Spirit. Come, change me transform me. Transform us by the reckless love of God. In Jesus' mighty and awesome name we pray. Amen.